Hey, everybody out there in podcast land, this is Chris, the public safety guru, a.k.a. the EMT tutor, bringing you this exciting announcement. I have revamped memberships, and you can now access exclusive content, which includes quizzes, practice tests, block exams, practice final exams, study guides, and other resources for the low cost of $4.99 a month. And when you're done with your EMT program or taking the National Registry exam, you can cancel. Now, you can join from your favorite podcast app, but it's best if you do it from Spotify or our Patreon channel. If you join from your podcast app, all you need to do is send me an email to thepublicsafetyguru at gmail.com letting me know that you signed up. But if you do it from Patreon, I get instant notification, which grants you instant access to our Google Drive, which has all of these resources, including the ad-free version of this podcast. But wait, here is the most exciting part. When you subscribe, you get access to our all-new Discord channel, which allows you to have interaction with me, where you can ask me specific questions as it relates to your EMT program or prepping for the National Registry exam. But let's just say you just have that question where you're not understanding something. Well, we can answer that question through Discord, and that's what I'm really excited about. And last, you can interact with this EMT community and help each other. All right, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the EMT Tutor, and I almost forgot, if you're looking for us at Patreon, search for the EMT Tutor. All right, let's get on with your learning. Face and neck injuries. After this podcast, the EMT student should have an understanding on how to manage trauma-related injuries to the face and neck. The EMT student should be able to recognize life threats associated with these injuries and the correlation with head and spinal trauma. This podcast will discuss detailed anatomy and physiology of the head, neck, and eye, and we will discuss injuries including trauma to the mouth, penetrating neck trauma, laryngeal tracheal injuries, and facial fractures. We will also talk about dental injuries and blast injuries to the eye and the medical management of common eye injuries such as foreign objects, puncture wounds, lacerated eyelids, burns, impaled objects, and complications from blood trauma. As with all of our podcasts, we will now identify the knowledge domains, which is the information the EMT should know after their classroom lecture, reading, testing, and listening to this podcast. All right, here are your knowledge domains. The EMT student should be able to describe the anatomy and physiology of the head, face, and neck and include the major structures and specific important landmarks of which EMTs must be aware. The EMT student should be able to describe the factors that may cause obstruction of the upper airway following a facial injury. The EMT student should be able to discuss the different types of facial injuries and patient care considerations related to each injury. You should also be able to explain the emergency care of a patient who has sustained face and neck injuries, including assessment of the patient, a review of the signs and symptoms, and management of care. You should also be able to explain the emergency care of a patient with soft tissue wounds of the face and neck. 
Additionally, you should be able to explain the emergency care of a patient with an eye injury based on the following scenarios. A foreign body object, impaled object, burns, lacerations, blunt trauma, closed head injuries, and blast injuries. You should be able to describe the three different causes of a burn injury to the eye and patient management considerations related to each one. You should be able to explain the emergency care of a patient with injuries of the nose. You should also be able to explain the emergency care of a patient with injuries of the ear, including lacerations and forward body insertions. You should also be able to explain the physical findings and emergency care of a patient with a facial fracture, as well as those patients with dental and cheek injuries, including how to deal with an involved tooth. You should also be able to explain the emergency care of a patient with an upper airway injury caused by blunt trauma. And last, explain the emergency care of a patient with a penetrating injury to the neck, including how to control regular and life-threatening bleeding. Okay, I know it sounds like a lot and I always say this. However, we're going to cover all of those topics. All right, let's get to it. The face and neck are particularly vulnerable to injury because of their relatively unprotected positions on the body. Soft tissue injuries and fractures are common and vary in severity. Some injuries are life-threatening. Penetrating trauma to the neck may cause severe bleeding. An open injury may allow an air embolus to enter the circulatory system. If a hematoma forms in this area, it may stop or slow blood flow to the brain causing a stroke. With appropriate pre-hospital and hospital care, a patient with a seemingly devastating injury can have a surprisingly good outcome. Alright, let's talk a little bit about the anatomy and physiology as it relates to these type of injuries. I always say the best way to learn EMT is in chunks. There's this old saying that you can't eat an elephant whole, that you have to eat him in chunks. I know, kind of probably sounds kind of gross, but it's just one of those sayings. So with that, what we're going to do is we're going to break down the anatomy and physiology into regions. For an example, we're going to discuss the cranium, then we're going to move to the face, and so on and so forth. This will help you to retain that information so that you can focus on one particular area. All right, let's first talk about the cranium. The cranium is also referred to as the skull. The skull contains the brain. The brain connects to the spinal cord through the forum magnum, which is a large opening at the base of the skull. The most posterior portion of the cranium is called the occiput, spelled O-C-C-I-P-U-T. On each side of the cranium, the lateral portions are called the temples or the temporal regions. Between the temporal regions and the occiput lie the parietal regions. The forehead is called the frontal region. Anterior to the ear, in the temporal region, you can feel the pulse of the superficial temporal artery. Now for me, I don't really refer to that posterior portion as the occiput. I actually call it the occipital. And I've never really seen or heard anyone call it occiput. So I refer to it as the occipital region of the head. You need to check with your particular instructors to see how they want you to refer to this region, but neither is wrong. All right, let's talk about the face now. The face is composed of the eyes, ears, nose, mouth, and cheeks. The six major bones of the face include the nasal bone, two zygomas, two maxillae, 
and the mandible. The orbit of the eye is composed of the lower edge of the frontal bone of the skull, a zygoma, a maxilla, and the nasal bone. One more time. The orbit of the eye is composed of the lower edge of the frontal bone of the skull, a zygoma, the maxilla, and the nasal bone. The bony orbit protects the eye from injury. Okay, let's now talk about the nose. Only the proximal third of the nose is formed by bone. The remaining two-thirds are composed of cartilage. Now, a little bit about the ear that you may not know. The exposed portion of the ear is composed entirely of cartilage covered by skin. The external visible part is called the pina, spelled P-I-N-N-A. The tragus, spelled T-R-A-G-U-S, is a small, rounded, fleshy bulge immediately anterior to the ear canal. The superficial temporal artery can be palpated just anterior to the tragus. About one inch posterior to the external opening of the ear is the mastoid process. The mastoid process is a bony mass at the base of the skull. The mandible forms the jaw and chin. The jaw is the lower border of the mouth where the tongue and 32 teeth are located. Motion of the mandible occurs at the temporal mandibular joint, which lies just in front of the ear on either side of the face. Now that was spelled T-E-M-P-O-R-O-M-A-N-D-I-B-U-L-A-R. Now just for your own edification, I have never heard anyone say this particular joint. So the likelihood of you being tested on it are probably slim to none. Now, below the ear and anterior to the mastoid process, the angle of the mandible is easily palpated. Before we move on to the neck, let me just help you to understand what you truly need to know about the skull. You need to know how the skull is broken up. You need to know that the front of the head is the frontal, the two sides are the parietal, as well as you have two temporals, and then the back is the occipital. Now, in regards to the face, you need to know that the eye sockets are truly called zygomatics, and then you have your jaw, which is the maxillary and mandible. And I always tell students, the best way to remember which one is which is max is over mandy. And that is really about it when it comes to the bones of the skull. Now, your particular program may have you memorize more. However, the feedback that I have received from students who are currently taking the National Registry test have informed me that those were the highlights of their testing. But once again, you should try to memorize as much as you possibly can in regards to the anatomy and physiology as it will help you in other tests. Okay, let's move on to the neck now. The neck contains many important structures. It's supported by the cervical spine. The first seven vertebrae in the spinal column are C1 through C7. The spinal cord consists from the forum magnum and lies within the spinal canal formed by the vertebrae. 
The upper part of the esophagus and the trachea lie in the midline of the neck. The carotid arteries are found on each side of the trachea along with the jugular veins and several nerves. Now the larynx. The Adam's apple is located in the center of the anterior of the neck. The Adam's apple is the upper part of the larynx. It is formed by the thyroid cartilage. It is most prominent in men than in women. The other portion of the larynx is the cricoid cartilage. This is a firm ridge of cartilage below the thyroid cartilage. Then we have the cricoid thyroid membrane. The cricoid thyroid membrane lies between the thyroid cartilage and the cricoid cartilage. There is a soft depression in the midline of the neck. Now this cricoid thyroid membrane is a thin sheet of connective tissue that joins the two cartilages. Now why is this important? When you're on a call where a paramedic may possibly be inserting a endotracheal tube, the paramedic may ask you to apply cric pressure. And this is when you take your thumb and index finger and find this landmark and gently press down, allowing the paramedic to see the vocal cords. So you need to look at the diagrams. I am definitely sure your instructors are going over this in depth. Now the trachea. The trachea is below the larynx. The trachea connects the oropharynx and the larynx with the main passages of the lungs, which is the bronchi. On either side of the lower larynx and the upper trachea lies the thyroid gland. Okay, this is going to be a bit of a tongue twister for me. The sternocleidomastoid muscles. Okay, these muscles originate from the mastoid process of the cranium and insert into the medial border of each collarbone and the sternum at the base of the neck. This muscle allows for movement of the head. This is probably one of the main muscles that you need to know exist. Sounds like a lot. Let me spell that for you though. It is spelled S-T-E-R-N-O-C-L-E-I-D-O-M-A-S-T. T-O-I-D. Trust me, when I typed it, I was like, I don't want to say it. One of the best things about this actual muscle is how it's spelled. You have the sternal, which tells us that it's connected to the sternum. And then the mastoid part, well, then it heads up to the jaw, to the mastoid portion of the skull. And you put two and two together, and there you go. You have the main muscle that allows for head movement. All right, let's move on to the eye. The eye is globe-shaped and it's approximately one inch in diameter. It's located within the bony socket in the skull called the orbit. The orbit is composed of adjacent bones of the face and skull. In adults, the orbit protects over 80% of the eyeball. Between and below the orbits are the nasal bone and the sinuses. The eyeball or globe keeps its shape as a result of pressure from the fluid contained within its two chambers. Clear, jelly-like fluid near the back of the eye is called the vitreous humor. In front of the lens is a clear fluid called the aqueous humor. In penetrating injuries of the eye, aqueous humor can leak out. With time and appropriate medical treatment, the body can make more. Now the conjunctiva is a membrane that covers the eye. 
The lacrimin glands, often called tear glands, produce fluid to keep the eyes moist. When a person blinks, fluid is swept from the lacrimal glands over the surface of the eye cleaning it. The tears drain out the inner side of the eye through two lacrimia ducts in the nasal cavity. The sclera is the white fibrous tissue that helps maintain the globular shape and protects the more delicate inner structures. On the front of the eye, the sclera is replaced by a clear transparent membrane called the cornea. This allows light to enter the eye. The iris is a circular muscle behind the cornea. The iris acts like a camera to adjust the size of the opening to regulate the amount of light that enters the eye. The eye is pigmented, giving the eye its color. The pupil is the opening in the center of the iris. It allows light to move to the back of the eye. The anuscoria is a condition in which a person is born with different size pupils. In unconscious patients, unequal pupil size may indicate serious injury or illness of the brain or eye. Now the lens lies behind the iris. The lens focuses image on the retina at the back of the globe. The retina contains nerve endings which respond to light by transmitting nerve impulses through the optic nerve to the brain. The retina is nourished by a layer of blood vessels between it and the back of the globe. This is called the chorid. Retinal detachment is when the retina detaches from the underlying chorid and sclera, and this causes blindness. I bet that is more information about the eye than you ever knew. Now, I will tell you this. If you're like, what did he just say? Well, that's the best part about this podcast is you can go back and re-listen to those parts that you just didn't get. And I actually recommend that with the eye. The main components of the eye, I'm going to say this to you. You have to know what the pupil is. You have to know the cornea, the sclera, the tear ducts, the optic nerve. You want to know the main parts of that. If you can wrap your head around those main parts and know where they are and what their functions are, you will definitely be okay. All right, let's now focus on injuries of the face and neck. Injuries about the face and neck can often lead to partial or complete obstruction of the upper airway. Several factors may contribute to the obstruction. First, blood clots in the upper airway from heavy facial bleeding can lead to complete obstruction, especially in unconscious patients. Direct injuries to the nose and mouth, the larynx, and the trachea are often the source of significant bleeding and or respiratory compromise. You may need to suction the airway. Injuries may cause teeth or dentures to become dislodged into the throat. Swelling that accompanies direct or indirect injury to the soft tissue can also contribute to airway obstruction. The airway may also be affected when the patient's head is turned to the side. This is often the case with altered level of consciousness or unconscious patients. Possible injuries to the brain and or cervical spine may interfere with normal respirations. If the great vessels in the neck are injured, significant bleeding and pressure on the upper airway are common. Now under soft tissue injuries, soft tissue injuries of the face and neck are very common. The face and neck are extremely vascular. Swelling in this area may be more severe. Skin and tissues in these areas have a rich blood supply. Bleeding from penetrating injuries may be heavy. 
even minor soft tissue wounds of the face and neck may bleed profusely. A blunt injury can cause a hematoma. Sometimes a flap of skin is peeled back or evolves. Now under dental injuries, mandible injuries are common because of its prominence. Secondly, only to nasal fractures in frequency. Most of these fractures are the result of vehicle collisions and assaults. Signs of mandible fractures include 1. Misalignment of the teeth 2. Numbness of the chin 3. Inability to open the mouth Maxillary fractures are usually found after blunt force high energy impacts. The signs of a maxillary fracture include massive facial swelling, instability of the facial bones, and or misalignment of teeth. Fractured and involved teeth are common following facial trauma. Teeth fragments can become an airway obstruction and should be removed immediately. Well, we've been going strong for over 20 minutes now, so let's take that pause that I like to take, get something to drink, clear your head, and let's jump right back into this. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. All right, let's talk about patient assessment. First, under scene size up, scene safety. Upon arrival, observe for hazards and threats to safety. Assess for the potential of violence and environmental hazards. Standard precautions require eye protection and a face mask because of the potential for projectile blood. Place several pairs of gloves in your pockets for easy access. Determine the number of patients and consider the need for additional resources. Now under mechanism of injury, assess the scene looking for indicators of the mechanism of injury. Consider how the MOI produced the injuries expected. Common MOIs for face and neck injuries include motor vehicle collisions, sports accidents, falls, penetrating trauma, and blunt trauma. Now under primary assessment, focus on identifying and managing life threats first. Threats to ABCs must be treated immediately. When there is life-threatening external hemorrhage, it should be addressed before airway and breathing, and we've talked about this before. Next, form a general impression. Look for important indicators of the seriousness of the patient's condition. Injuries to the face and throat may be very obvious, but may also be hidden by collars or hats. Control blood loss with direct pressure. Consider the need for manual spinal immobilization and check for responsiveness using the AVPU scale. Now under airway and breathing, ensure a clear and patent airway. If the patient is unresponsive or has a significant altered level of consciousness, consider a properly sized OP airway. The NP airway is controversial because of the possibility of insertion directly into the cranial vault and brain tissue if the patient has a facial or head trauma. But be aware and follow your local protocols. Now quickly assess for adequacy of breathing. Palpate the chest wall for DCAP BTLS. If penetrating trauma is discovered, place an occlusive dressing on the wound. Maintain the airway, provide supplemental oxygen, and initiate BVM ventilation if necessary. Check for breathing sounds and provide rapid transport to the hospital if abnormal. Splinting or otherwise restricting chest wall motion is contraindicated. Splinting is ineffective and can impair air exchange. Circulation. 
you must quickly assess the pulse rate and quality. Determine the skin condition, color, and temperature. Check the capillary refill time. Significant bleeding is an immediate life threat. Now under transport decision, consider quickly transporting patients with airway or breathing problems or with significant bleeding. Stabilization and maintenance of the airway and breathing as well as control of bleeding can be very difficult in patients with facial or neck injuries. Consider ALS backup if the transport time is long. A patient with internal bleeding must be transported quickly for treatment by a physician. Internal bleeding may compromise blood flow to the brain. Bleeding from blood vessels of the throat can impact the patient's airway. Now signs of hypoperfusion, aka shock, include tachycardia, tachypnea, low blood pressure, weak pulse, and cool, moist, pale skin. The patient who has a significant MOI but whose condition appears stable should also be transported promptly. Remember that any significant blow to the face or throat should increase your suspicion of spinal or brain injury. Even if the patient has no signs of hypoperfusion or other life-threatening injuries, there is a possibility of eye injuries. Consider these serious. The patient should be transported to the hospital as quickly and safely as possible. Surgery and or restoration of circulation to the eye will need to be accomplished within 30 minutes or permanent blindness may result. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about history taking. Investigate the chief complaint. Obtain a medical history. Be alert for injury-specific signs and symptoms. You should also be aware of any pertinent negatives such as no pain or no loss of sensation. Now under sample history, attempt to gather from friends or family if the patient is unresponsive. In unresponsive patients, you will only be able to notice signs of injuries. Information may have to be attained by someone who has knowledge about the patient. Information may or may not be accurate and may be incomplete. Now under secondary assessment, more detailed comprehensive examination of the patient that is used to uncover injuries that may have been missed during the primary assessment. This is what your secondary assessment is all about. You may not always have time to conduct a secondary assessment though. Under your physical examination, if multiple systems are likely to have been affected, start with an assessment of the entire body looking for decap BTLS. Perform a detailed examination of specific areas. Do not delay transport to complete a thorough physical examination. In a responsive patient who has an isolated injury with a limited MOI, consider focusing your physical examination on the isolated injury, the patient's chief complaint, and the body region affected. Ensure that control of bleeding is maintained and note the location of the injury. Inspect the open wound for any foreign matter and stabilize impaled objects. During the physical examination, use both your eyes and your hands. Your eyes will be looking for swelling, deformities of bones, contusions, and discoloration. Your hands will be gently palpating the face, looking and feeling for any abnormalities. If your patient is responsive, you should explain exactly what you're doing and what you are looking for. Your discovery of abnormality may be an old injury. Assess all underlying systems including neurological system including the brain and major nerves, 
sensory organs, including the eyes and nose, respiratory system, including mouth, nose, sinuses, and airway, circulatory system, focusing on carotid arteries and jugular veins. When evaluating the eyes, start with the outer aspect and work toward the pupils. Examine the eye for any obvious foreign matter. Visual acuity is considered the vital sign of the eye. Gently cover one eye and hold fingers up at arm's length in front of the open eye. Test both eyes for the ability to see fingers. Note any discoloration of the eye, bleeding in the iris area, or redness. Look for eye symmetry because asymmetry indicates a possible brain injury. Look at each pupil for equal size and reaction to light. If pupils are not symmetric, inquire about previous surgery or injuries. Determine whether unequal pupils are caused by physiological or pathological issues. Brain injury, nerve disease, glaucoma, and meningitis are all possible causes of unequal pupils. Now under vital signs, assess vital signs to obtain a baseline so that you can observe any changes during treatment. You must be concerned with visible bleeding and unseen bleeding inside a body's cavity. With facial and throat injuries, baseline information about respirations and pulse is very important. Now if you have the proper monitoring devices, use appropriate monitoring devices to qualify your patient's oxygenation and circulatory status. You may also use non-invasive methods to monitor the blood pressure. Alright, let's move to your reassessment. Repeat the primary assessment. Reassess vital signs and the chief complaint. Continually reassess the adequacy of airway, breathing, and circulation. Recheck patient's interventions. This is particularly important in patients with facial or neck injuries because the ease in which injuries can affect associated system. This is particularly important in patients with facial or neck injuries because the ease in which injuries can affect associated symptoms. The patient's condition should be reassessed about every five minutes. Interventions. Provide complete spinal immobilization to any patient with suspected spinal injuries. Spinal injuries should be suspected anytime there is significant trauma to the face or neck. Maintain an open airway, be prepared to suction the patient and consider an OP airway. Whenever you suspect significant bleeding, provide high flow O2. If needed, provide assisted ventilation using a BVM with high flow oxygen. Control any significant visible bleeding. If the patient has signs of hypoperfusion, Treat the patient aggressively for shock and provide rapid transport. Do not delay transport of a serious injured patient to complete non-life-saving treatments in the field. Now, under communication and documentation. In your documentation, include a description of the MOI and the position in which you found the patient. In cases of motor vehicle accidents, document the method used to remove the patient from the vehicle. In patients with severe external bleeding, it is important to recognize estimate and report the amount of blood loss that has occurred. Inform the hospital about all injuries involving the head and neck. Specialists may be needed to manage injuries to the eyes, ears, teeth, mouth, sinuses, larynx, esophagus, and the large vessels. Okay, let's now move on to the emergency medical care 
for these injuries. Treat soft tissue injuries to the face and neck the same as soft tissue injuries elsewhere on the body. Assess ABCs and life threats first. Follow standard precautions. In the absence of life-threatening bleeding, the first step is to open and clear the airway. The patient may need frequent suctioning of blood draining into the throat. Avoid moving the neck in patients with suspected cervical spine injuries. Use a jaw thrust maneuver to open the airway and then suction the mouth. Once the patient is immobilized, you can turn the backboard to one side to allow blood or vomit to drain from the mouth. Now control bleeding by applying direct manual pressure with a dry sterile dressing. Use roller gauze wrapped around the circumference of the head to hold a pressure dressing in place. Do not apply excessive pressure if there is a possibility of an underlying skull fracture. When an injury exposes the brain, eye, or other structures, cover the exposed part with a moist, sterile dressing. Apply ice locally to injuries that do not break the skin. For soft tissue injuries around the mouth, check for bleeding inside the mouth. Broken teeth and lacerations to the tongue may cause profuse bleeding and obstruction of the upper airway. Often, the patient will swallow the blood so the hemorrhage may not be apparent. Patients who swallow blood are prone to vomiting. Physicians can sometimes graft a piece of evolved skin back into the appropriate position. If you find portions of evolved skin, wrap them in a sterile dressing, place them in a plastic bag, and keep them cool. Never place tissue on ice because freezing will destroy the tissue and make it unusable. Deliver the bag labeled with the patient's name to the emergency room. If the skin is still attached in a loose flap, place the flap in a position that is as close to normal as possible. Hold it in place with dry, sterile dressing. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the emergency medical care for specific injuries. First, we're going to talk about injuries to the eyes. Eye injuries are common, particularly in sports. Eye injuries can produce lifelong complications, including blindness. Proper emergency treatment will minimize pain and may prevent a permanent loss of vision. In a normal uninjured eye, the entire circle of the iris is visible. The pupils are round, usually equal in size, and react equally when exposed to light. Both eyes move together in the same direction when following your moving finger. After an eye injury, pupil reaction or shape and eye movement are often disturbed. Abnormal pupil reaction sometimes are a sign of brain injury rather than an eye injury. Treatment starts with a thorough examination. Always use standard precautions. Take care not to aggravate any problems. Look for specific abnormalities or conditions that may suggest the nature of the injury. A damaged cornea quickly loses its smooth, wet appearance. Now, foreign objects. The orbit protects the eye from the penetration of large objects. Even a very small object may produce severe irritation. The conjunctivia becomes inflamed and red and causes a condition known as conjunctivitis, and the eye begins to produce tears in an attempt to flush out the object. Irritation of the cornea or conjunctivia causes intense pain. Irrigation with a sterile saline solution will frequently flush away loose, small particles. Use a bulb syringe or a nasal airway or cannula to direct saline into an infected eye. 
always flush from the nose side of the eye toward the outside to avoid flushing material into the other eye. A foreign body will leave a small abrasion on the conjunctiva. The patient may still report irritation. Gentle irrigation usually will not wash out foreign bodies stuck to the cornea or lying under the upper eyelid. If you spot a foreign object on the surface of the eyelid, you may be able to remove it with a moist, sterile, cotton-tip applicator. Never attempt to remove an object that is stuck to the cornea. Foreign bodies may be impaled in the eye. They must be removed by a physician. Your care involves stabilizing the object and preparing the patient for transport. Bandage the object in place to support it. Cover the eye with a moist, sterile dressing. Surround the object with a donut-shaped collar made from roller gauze or a small gauze pack. And you should learn this in your particular EMT program. When you see or suspect an impale object or objects in the eye, bandage both eyes with soft, bulky dressing to prevent further injury. The bandage should be loose enough to hold the eyelid closed but not cause pressure on the eye itself. This type of injury must be handled by an ophthalmologist on an urgent basis. Okay, now let's talk about burns to the eye. Your role is to stop the burn and prevent further damage. Now we have chemical burns. These are usually caused by acid or alkaline solutions. Flush the eye with water or sterile saline irrigation solution. Direct the greatest amount of irrigating solution or water into the eye as gently as possible. You may have to force the lids open to irrigate. Use a bulb irrigation syringe, nasal cannula, basin, or running faucet. You can even have the patient immerse his or her face in a large pan or basin of water and rapidly blink the affected eyelid. Flush from the inner corner of the affected eye toward the outside corner. If the burn was caused by an alkali or a strong acid, you should irrigate the eye continuously for at least 20 minutes. After irrigation, apply a clean, dry dressing to cover the eye and transport the patient. Okay, now let's talk about thermal burns. During a fire, the eyes will close to protect themselves from heat. Eyelids are frequently burned and require specialized care. Transport promptly without further examination. Cover both eyes with a sterile dressing moistened with sterile saline. You may apply eye shields over the dressing. Now light burns. Infrared rays, eclipse light, and laser beams can all cause significant damage to the sensory cells of the eye. Retinal injuries caused by exposure to extremely bright light are generally not painful but may result in permanent damage. Superficial burns of the eye can result from ultraviolet rays from an arc welder unit, light from prolonged exposure to a sun lamp, or reflective light from a bright snow-covered area. These burns may not be painful at first, but may become so after 3-5 to five hours. Severe conjunctivitis usually develops with redness, swelling, and excessive tear production. You can also ease the pain by covering each eye with a sterile, moist pad and an eye shield. The patient should be examined by a physician as soon as possible. Alright, now let's talk about those dreaded lacerations to the eyes. Lacerations of the eyelids require very careful repair to restore appearance and function. Bleeding may be heavy, 
but it usually can be controlled with gentle manual pressure. If there is a laceration of the globe itself, apply no pressure to the eye. Compression can interfere with the blood supply and result in loss of vision. Follow these important guidelines in treating penetrating injuries to the eye. First, never exert pressure and or manipulate the injured globe. If part of the eyeball is exposed, gently apply a moist sterile dressing to prevent drying. Cover the injured eye with a protective metal eye shield, cup, or sterile dressing. Apply soft dressings to both eyes and provide prompt transport. On rare occasions, the eyeball may be displaced from its socket. Do not attempt to reposition it. Cover the eye and stabilize it with a moist sterile dressing. Cover both eyes to prevent further injury because of sympathetic movement. Have the patient lie supine to prevent loss of fluid from the eye. Okay, let's talk about blunt trauma now. Injuries range from the ordinary black eye to a severely damaged globe. Hyphemia, spelled H-Y-P-H-E-M-A, obscures all or part of the iris, and what this is is bleeding into the anterior chamber of the eye. It is common in blunt trauma and may cause serious impaired vision. Cover the eye to protect it from further injury and provide transportation to the hospital. Orbit fracture, otherwise known as a blowout fracture. This fracture is caused by a fracture of the bones that form the eye floor and support the globe. Place the patient on a stretcher and transport immediately. Protect the eye with a metal shield. Cover the other eye to minimize eye movement. Now you probably have heard of retinal detachment. This is often seen in sports, especially boxing. It is painless but produces flashing lights, specks, or floaters. It requires prompt medical attention to preserve vision. Now eye injuries following a head injury. Any of the following eye findings should alert you to the possibility of a head injury. One pupil larger than the other. Eyes not moving together or pointing in different directions. Failure of the eyes to follow movement of your fingers as instructed. Bleeding under the conjunctiva. Protrusion or bulging of one eye. For an unconscious patient, keep the eyelids closed. Cover the lids with moist gauze or hold them closed with clear tape. Normal tears will keep the tissues moist. Now let's talk a little bit about blast injuries to eyes. Signs and symptoms of blast injuries range from severe pain and loss of vision to foreign bodies within the globe. Before responding to patients after the blast, ensure that the scene is safe. Management of injuries to the eye depends on the severity of the injury. If there is a foreign body within the globe, do not attempt to remove it. Use a clean cup or similar item to protect the area. If only one eye is injured, follow your local protocols. Patients with a sudden loss or decrease of vision will have to be verbally instructed of what is going on around them. If the patient has severe swelling or a hematoma to the eyelid, do not attempt to force the eyelid open to examine it. Now, contact lenses and artificial eyes. In general, do not attempt to remove contact lenses. The only exception is for chemical burns. 
To remove a hard contact lens, use a small suction cup, moisten the end with saline. To remove soft contact lenses, place one or two drops of saline in the eye, gently pinch the lens between your glove thumb and index finger and lift it off the surface of the eye. Place the lens in a container with sterile saline solution. Advise the hospital staff if the patient is wearing contact lenses. Occasionally, you may find yourself caring for a patient wearing an eye prosthesis. You should suspect an eye of being artificial when it does not respond to light, move in concert with the opposite eye, or appear quite the same as the opposite eye. If you're not sure, ask about it. Alright, that is it for eye injuries. Thank God. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we've been going strong for a little over 20 minutes again approximately 23 minutes. So we're going to go ahead and take that much needed break because that was a lot of information to digest. So hit the pause button, get something to drink, clear the head, and we're going to move on and we're going to start talking about injuries to the nose. Okay, welcome back ladies and gentlemen. Nosebleed, otherwise known as an epistaxis, are a common problem. One of the most common causes is digital trauma. Yes, picking your nose. Nosebleeds are further categorized into anterior and posterior epistaxis. Anterior nosebleeds usually originate from the area of the septum and bleed fairly slowly, usually self-limiting and resolve quickly. Posterior nosebleeds are usually more severe and often cause blood to drain into the patient's throat. Attempting to insert an NP airway into a patient with a suspected basilar skull fracture or with facial injuries is controversial. Follow your local protocols. The nose often takes the brunt of physical assaults and car crashes. Blunt injuries to the nose may be associated with fractures and soft tissue injuries of the face, head injuries, and or injuries to the cervical spine. Assess the nose structures for injury. It is helpful to picture the inside of the nose itself. The nasal cavity is divided into two chambers by the nasal septum. Both chambers have a superior, middle, and inferior tubinate. Directly above the nose are the frontal sinuses and on either side the orbit of the eye. Cerebral spinal fluid, CSF, may escape down through the nose following a fracture at the base of the skull. Use a piece of gauze to absorb the blood. If CSF fluid is present, the blood will be surrounded by a lighter ring of fluid and this is called the halo test. Control bleeding by applying a sterile dressing. If the patient is bleeding heavily, it could be the result of significant trauma. Consider cervical spine injury. The patient should not be moved if the airway can be managed in the patient's present position. For a non-trauma patient who is bleeding from the nose, place the patient in a sitting position, leaning forward and pinch the nostrils together. This is a skill that you should be practicing in your program. Injuries of the ear. The ear is complex and associated with hearing and balance. It's divided into three parts. The external ear, the middle ear, and the inner ear. The external ear has the pina, spelled P-I-N-N-A, or auricle, A-U-R-I-C-L-E, which lies outside of the head. The external auditory canal leads in towards the tympanic membrane, which is otherwise known as your eardrum. Now the middle ear. The middle ear contains three small bones, the hammer, anvil, and stirrup. 
that move in response to sound waves hitting the tympanic membrane. The middle ear is connected to the nasal cavity by the Eschian tube, which is the internal auditory canal. The inner ear is composed of bony chambers filled with fluid. As the head moves, so does the fluid. In response, fine nerve endings within the fluid send impulses to the brain about the position of the head. Ears are often injured, but they do not usually bleed very much. If local pressure does not control bleeding, apply a roller dressing. In the case of an ear evulsion, wrap the evolved part in a moist, sterile dressing and put it in a plastic labeled bag with the patient's name. Now, if you have a tympanic membrane rupture, sudden changes in pressure created by a blast wave may cause this injury. Patients will report severe pain, difficulty hearing, or ringing in the affected ear. It may also be caused by insertion of objects too far into the ear, such as using a Q-tip. Patients with a suspected tympanic membrane injury should be transported to the hospital for evaluation. Now, children place foreign bodies in the external auditory canal. All foreign bodies should be removed by a physician. Do not try to manipulate the foreign body. You may push it further into the ear, thus causing damage. Clear fluid coming from the ear may indicate a skull fracture. Now, facial fractures. These are typically seen or they are a typical result from blunt impact. You should assume that any patient who has sustained a direct blow to the mouth or nose has a facial fracture. Often, your clues include bleeding in the mouth, inability to swallow or talk, absence or loose teeth, or loose or movable bone fragments. Facial fractures alone are not acute emergencies unless there is serious bleeding. In addition to external hemorrhage, there is the danger of blood clots lodging in the upper airway and causing of obstruction. In addition to external hemorrhage, there is a danger of blood clots lodging in the upper airway and causing unobstruction. Plastic surgeons can repair the damage to the face and mouth if the injuries are treated within the first 7 to 10 days. Remove and save loose teeth or bone fragments from the mouth because it is often possible to replant them. Remove any loose dentures or dental bridges to protect against airway obstruction. Another source of airway obstruction is swelling, which can be extreme within the first 24 hours after an injury. Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about dental injuries. Dental injuries can be traumatic to the patient. The injury may be traumatic and the patient's permanent teeth may be lost. This can affect everything from eating to smiling. Bleeding will occur whenever a tooth is violently displaced from its socket. Apply direct pressure to stop the bleeding. Perform suctioning if needed. Cracked or loose teeth are possible airway obstructions. Save and transport an involved tooth, handling it by the crown rather than by the root. Place the tooth in tooth storage solutions such as cold milk or sterile saline and notify the receiving facility of the involved teeth. Reimplantation is recommended within 20 minutes to one hour after the trauma. Injuries to the cheek. You may encounter an object impaled in the patient's cheek. If you are unable to control the bleeding and it compromises the airway, consider removing the object. Then provide direct pressure, 
both on the inside and outside of the cheek. The amount of bandaging should not be so overwhelming that it occludes the mouth and makes it difficult to breathe. Remember, this is one of the two scenarios in which it is recommended that you actually remove an impelled object rather than stabilizing it in place. Okay, let's talk a little bit about injuries of the neck. The neck contains many structures vulnerable to injury by blunt trauma, including the upper airway, the esophagus, the carotid arteries and jugular veins, the thyroid cartilage, aka the Adam's apple, cricoid cartilage, and the upper part of the trachea. Now, blunt injuries. Any crushing injury of the upper part of the neck is likely to involve the larynx or trachea. Examples include collisions with the steering wheel, attempted suicide by hanging, or a clothesline injury sustained while riding a bicycle, skateboard, something to that effect. Once the cartilage of the upper airway and larynx are fractured, they do not spring back to their normal positions. This can lead to loss of voice, difficulty swallowing, severe and sometimes fatal airway obstruction, and leakage of air into the soft tissue of the neck. Subcutaneous emphysema is a characteristic crackling sensation produced by the presence of air in the soft tissue of the neck. So sub-Q emphysema, the best way I can describe this is Rice Krispies underneath the patient's skin. When you feel it, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. But remember, this is very, very painful to the patient. If you feel this when palpating the neck, maintain the airway as best you can and transport immediately. Complete airway obstruction can develop very rapidly. ALS support either by air or intercept may be necessary. It is possible that these incidents involving an injury to the throat may also cause a cervical spine injury, so spinal immobilization may be needed. Penetrating injuries. Penetrating injuries to the neck can cause profuse bleeding from laceration of the great vessels in the neck. Injuries to the carotid and jugular veins in the neck can cause the body to bleed out, also known as insanguation. Injuries to these large vessels may also allow air to enter the circulatory system. If a vein has been punctured, air may be sucked through it to the heart. This condition is called an air embolism. A large amount of air in the right atrium and right ventricle of the heart can lead to cardiac arrest. The airway, the esophagus, and the spinal cord can be damaged by a penetrating injury. Direct pressure over the bleeding site will control most neck bleeding. You may find it necessary to apply pressure above and below the penetrating wound to control life-threatening bleeding. Maintain cervical spine immobilization if indicated. As we end this podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about laryngeal injuries. Blunt force trauma to the larynx can occur when an unrestrained driver strikes the steering wheel or such as an off-road biker strikes a clothesline or a fixed wire. Their larynx becomes crushed against the cervical spine, resulting in soft tissue injury, fractures, and or separation of the fascia. These strangulation injuries can also be found in either intentional or unintentional hangings. Anytime there is a suspected injury to the larynx, suspect possible cervical spine injury. 
Penetrating or impaled objects to the larynx should not be removed unless they interfere with cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Stabilize all impaled objects if they are not obstructing the airway. Significant injuries to the larynx pose an immediate risk of airway compromise. Signs and symptoms of larynx injuries include respiratory distress, hoarseness, pain, difficulty swallowing, cyanosis, pale skin, sputum in the wound, subcutaneous emphysema, bruising on the neck, hematoma, bleeding. To manage a laryngeal injury, provide O2 and ventilation. Apply cervical immobilization, but avoid the use of rigid collars. Okay, that is it for this lecture, ladies and gentlemen. Before you leave, I have some exciting news. At our website, thepublicsafetyguru.com, I will be adding a folder under Learning Tools offering free samples of our members-only exclusive content. All you have to do is head on over to the website, register for free, and check out what we have to offer. Remember, for the price of a fast food meal, you gain valuable access to exclusive content to aid you in your learning or passing the NREMT exam. Last, don't forget to follow us on Instagram. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening and happy EMTing.